Hello. How are you? <clears throat> I'm great. How are you, Dan? Good. A little, little rushed. Yeah, but, uh, I've, I'm good. I've now. got, uh, I've got a lot of echo on my vocals here because I was, whew, I was recording something and and uh, and I didn't take the, I didn't take the echo off, but now I've taken it off. You sound <sighs> normal to me. Well, yeah, it was internal echo. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Or maybe maybe that just is following me everywhere I go. <laughs> Hello. Oh oh. <laughs> You're just so used to being up on stage that. <laughs> is anybody in here? Here here. Uh, no, it's not about being on stage. It's about being crazy in your head, Dan. Yeah. Insane in the membrane. So I've been trying your driving around with a mug of coffee or a, a mug a mugged beverage. I have noticed that. And I've done it for a few days now. What's your success rate? Uh, success rate, I have not, I have not spilled anything. Mm-hmm. But it, I, uh, it, it adds a touch of class to everything, doesn't it? Well, it makes <laughs> me, I feel a little nervous uh, uh-huh. the whole time because I yeah. feel like if I take a turn too quick uh, or if I were to, for example, stop for a you know, for like a red light, I would want to blow. It makes you kind of want to keep the momentum going. So I feel like there's a, there's a theme here. Yeah. You're running some stop signs now, aren't well, you? Well, I'm not, but I feel like uh, I'm taking a risk of spillage if I don't, but I actually, as a real experiment to really, cause I'm the kind of person who really, I live really close to the edge and I, I know I, I know. wanted to, uh, risk of spillage. Yeah. I wanted to go a step further maybe than you've ever gone. And I actually brewed some tea. I prepared the beverage. So I had the hot boiling water and I took it out and I actually took, you know, took the tea bag and, and prepared the tea and brewed the tea for the first, you know, five minutes of the trip. Well, so no, wait, did you take a pot of boiling water in the car? No, I didn't do that. I poured it, poured the pot into the mug and took the hot water in the mug just that much into the, into the car with me. Right. Yeah, that is a lo- that is a lot a lot closer to the edge than I would dare. Yeah. Uh but I do well, I mean what is the theory Dan there's a theory wherein some small distraction uh like a like a uh, like a pebble in I your know shoe what you're talking about. Little small distraction actually enables you to or you know it 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 takes the static portion of your brain and gives it something to think about. It's and like then, when they're um, when they're circumcising the eleven year old boys, they hit their wrists with whoop. a switch to distract them from the pain. Well, yeah, that's a thing that happens. Yes, yeah, and oh. it's like a tribal, tribal thing. It's not too late for you. I don't want to hear about it. Okay. I am not eleven. Okay, but I I used to play back in the many 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 old times, back in the way way far off times, uh, when I had a. When I had access to a PC-based computing platform, <laughs> in addition to the Macintosh-based, yeah, uh, the the fettuccine-based sauce of the Macintosh, I used to. The thing I loved about the PC was that it came preloaded with Minesweeper. Oh yeah, huge, of, huge, huge time suck. Yeah, of all the games, of all the games in all the histories, in all the in all the gin joints in all the world, <laughs> yeah. Minesweeper, as loaded on on old PCs, was just my favorite thing, and I honestly felt that if I had Minesweeper going, 
I could talk much more effectively on the phone with people. Oh, yeah. It's sort of like uh, uh, Idle Hands, the Devil's mm-hmm. Play thing, that kind of Hmm. I'm not. Yeah. That. Well, let's throw a let's throw a bunch of adages at this and uh-huh. see if one of them sticks. All right. <laughs> uh, too many raspberries makes a bad soup. So I, I. But I. So I would sit and and play Minesweeper and and do these conference calls with people, and I really felt that it made me more effective. But I'm not sure if that's true or not. Right. It did. It did keep me from fidgeting. It did give like a the dumb part of my brain, something to do, but I may have taken away that razor's edge of sharpness. Mm -hmm. I think it's very good if you're having mind numbing conversations on the phone or if you're listening to, if you're part of a conference call, for instance. Uh But so I was about to say having that tea in your center console in a ceramic mug, maybe is focusing your attention in a positive way as yeah. you drive. Yeah. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, mm, probably being worried about a hot mug of something spilling on you while you're driving is not actually focusing your attention on other traffic mm-hmm. or important things. I, you know, I feel like what I do uh, is I, I, I keep the mug in my hand, uh, one elbow out the window of the truck, as we've already discussed. And if something bad was about to happen, if there was a car crash imminent, I would just huck the whole mug out the window and regain control. You know, like I would, <laughs> yeah. the, the mug would just go. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be worried about keeping it around, but yeah. I have, you know, I have had, I have had a few moments where I was like, do I stop at this stoplight and spill my coffee or do I just keep going? It's only, it's only a, it's only a hair. Mm. It's only a fraction of a second. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Dan. I think the jury's still out on this. Well, it was it was a neat experiment. I think what I know now is that if I need to, like if I'm if I'm sitting there drinking a beverage, I've got a coffee or tea or whatever it is I'm drinking in the mug, that if someone's like, hey, let's go, I, I don't have to be like, well, let me finish this. Or, oh, let me go get one of these little travel mugs. I can just say, all right, let's go and just walk out with it right in hand and even have to put mm-hmm. it down. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a it, it's a thought technology that enables you to uh you know to to go as God made you, to go to war with the army you have. <laughs> get in the car with the coffee mug you have. Right. <laughs> uh what is going on in your world, Dan? What uh you know, I know sometimes you prepare for these shows. I do. Uh with some notes or some kind of prompts. Mm-hmm. I have notes. I have sometimes different things different things, different prompts. Sometimes you have a diorama that you want uh-huh. a shoebox diorama. You want me to look in and see if I can see Abraham Lincoln. Right. Uh, so, uh, so let's just, you know, dispense with the pleasantries and dive right in. What is your, what have you got? What's your little shoebox full of, what's your bag of magic stones uh-huh. that are going to tell you about God's revelations? One of the questions that I had for you uh, that has been very pressing on my mind recently is, uh, and I think I know the answer to this intuitively, but I don't know why. I was curious if you had any tattoos. No. Okay. I, I thought that was what you would say. Why don't you? Uh, well, I tell a story about it that maybe over, t- it's one of those stories that I've told so many times that over time, I'm not sure how much the story has <laughs> morphed into being maybe like with a grain of truth, but, it, but, in every other sense, completely untrue. 
or maybe it really is close to true. Uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty close to true. I mean, the, 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 oh, I'll tell you the story. Okay. Uh, in high school, I had a friend named James Swainson and James had a tattoo and this is before anybody that was not a military, uh, a military or a sailor or a real hard rocker. Well, yeah. And I, we didn't, I didn't know very many of those, not in high school, but James was a pretty hard rocker and he got a tattoo on his forearm. It wasn't even a tattoo up on his, up on his t-shirt sleeve, <laughs> but a t-shirt right or a tattoo right on his forearm of a skull in a top hat, smoking a doobie. Nice. And I was, this is before guns and roses. Oh man. The skull, a top hat thing became a thing. And I was just like, that's really bold. You are. 16 years old that is really really is yeah and he was just like yeah man you mean you just got to live your life or whatever and so when i was traveling across so so that began me thinking about tattoos like whoa Mm -hmm. james has got a tattoo just right there for all the world to see and uh that's pretty boss and uh you know what what would what you know what would my version of that be and uh, so I left home, right? I was, I was um, traveling across the country. I was still 17. I was, I was in Colorado. And I went, I was with some friends. We were in Boulder. We went up to the top of the hill. And there were, you know, at the time, I mean, Boulder's never been super cleaned up. It's as cleaned up now as it's ever been. But in 1986, it was, that strip up there was pretty much like it was like it was like a grateful dead parking lot <laughs> and just head shops <laughs> and tattoo parlors and and uh vegan restaurants and it, you know it, there was nothing there was nothing quaint about it and i went into a tattoo parlor and i was like i want to get a tattoo of a giant mr yuck symbol on my shoulder you know on on my upper arm Big Mr. Yuck symbol, the size of a can of chew. Why Mr. Yuck? Well, you know what Mr. Yuck is. Isn't that the poison thing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Dan. It's the sticker that you put on bottles of detergent under your sink or, or cleaning fluid under your sink that tells little kids, don't touch this because it's poison. Don't touch it because it's bad. <laughs> right. And because like, that, that sort of disgusted tongue out face is the universally known symbol for something that tastes bad and you shouldn't eat it. And I'll tell you what, you know, you know how they have, and this isn't, I know that you are probably more interested. The only person I know who's more fascinated and interested in uh, nuclear war and post-apocalyptic stuff Mm. uh, than I am. But you know how they have that, I don't know if it's the Yucca Mountain thing or where it is, but one of the places where they have this, like, uh, this the dumping ground for all of the decommissioned nuclear waste and materials and everything inside the giant mountain, that they have been doing these different studies of how would they put, uh, how would they put symbols or identifiers on the outside of the mountain in such a way that future generations who might not, obviously they would put all the different languages on there, but what if a thousand years in the future, 
or 5,000 years in the future when this stuff is still quite radioactive that we would communicate to someone who might discover this mountain that this don't go in there. And they have determined that, that putting the, the, a carving, a drawing or an illustration of a human being with a look of disgust on their face is like the one way to com- communicate this message to potential future generations who won't be able to understand our language. That is the universal sign of, ugh, don't go in here. It's bad. Mm-hmm. The danger, of course, with that is that they're not accounting for the fact that 5,000 years from now, what if the only remaining <laughs> race of humans are totally punk? <laughs> they just, that's right? just their morning, morning face. Well, yeah. What, or, or what if they're just like, oh, man, something in here is really fucked up, man. We're not even supposed to I go know. in here. Let's do it. You know, like there's just that's the thing. Yeah. You can't. You can't keep people out of your big radioactive salt mine if they want to get in. <laughs> but yeah, Mr. Yuck was supposed to be the universal symbol. I de- or it was supposed to be something that even a child that was pre-language right. could see and understand. And so I wanted to get that on my arm because that Mr. Yuck symbols were very prominent when I was a kid. Really? And b- by the time, oh, we, you know, they gave them to us at school. We put them on it. We were, we were meant to go home. I think we might have been uh, the first generation that had those stickers. I think we're probably should be called Generation Yuck. <laughs> and they gave us big sheets of Mr. Yuck stickers, big ones, small ones. And we were instructed to go home and put Mr. Yuck stickers on every bottle of paint and garbage and uh, and toxic stuff that we could find in our house so that we knew not to drink them. But, you know, of course, by the time you're a kid old enough to go home and say, Mom, we need to put these stickers on all the stuff we're not supposed to drink. (laughs) You're already past the point where you're like drinking stuff out of the bottom of the under the sink. Right. Like, oh, what's this? It's uh, it's, you know, I can't read it, but I can. But it must be good. It must be soda pop or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know how many kids actually die every year from drinking kerosene. It has to be a small number. But so Mr. Yuck stickers, I mean, and the thing is they gave us Mr. Yuck stickers all the time. So once you had one set of them and had put Mr. Yuck stickers on every single thing in the, in the whole house, including like stuff that you would never consider, you know, including like Brillo pads and Mm. stuff like who's going to eat a Brillo pad. Better put a Mr. Yuck sticker on there. But then they would give you a whole bunch more of these. And so inevitably you ended up putting them on everything in a sense by giving you a ton of them. It completely watered down the message because if there are Mr. Yuck stickers on all your toys and on your bike and on your skateboard, some little kid is not going to identify that as like, Oh, don't, don't go on this. It's going to be like, yeah, this skateboard is yucky man (laughs) so anyway but then mr yuck stickers it seemed to me had was a thing of the past at the time you know and by the by the 1980s you didn't see it anymore it felt very retro right to me in 86 like remember mr yuck from the 70s and so this tattoo idea had a lot of resonance for me it was retro it meant that i was poison it was 
very graphic. Uh-huh. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was some tough shit. It was, I was, it was going to be the thing that set me apart from everybody else. Sure. And if I had gone in, I've thought about this a lot. If I'd gone into this tattoo parlor and said, give me this Mr. Yuck symbol. And he had proceeded to give me a Mr. Yuck symbol. Um, according to the generally understood, uh, potato chip law of tattoos, which is that once you get one, then you have to eat the whole bag. Ah. Um, 1986 was pre, for the most part, entirely before the era of young people getting tattoos as a gesture of, of uh, body ownership or, right. um, you know, alternative culture. You never saw them. And it was just the, be- you know, people were just starting to be like, yeah, I'm going to get a tattoo. If I had gotten that Mr. Yuck tattoo, by the time it was 1990, I think I probably would have had three or four. Mm-hmm. And by the time it was 1994, I probably would have had six or seven. And now we would be talking and I would have tattoos on my knuckles. I'm not sure I ever would have gotten one on my neck, but you know, maybe, maybe a little one behind my ear that said, fuck you. What are you looking at? Right. Um, you know, I would be like a lot of my friends are, uh, very adorned and, So I went into this tattoo parlor and the guy at the tattoo counter heard my idea and you could tell he was not that impressed. And he said, how old are you? It's like 17 and nine tenths. <laughs> and he said, well, you have to be 18 to get a tattoo. And I don't know if that's, I mean, if, if that's true, he's the only guy in the country that was <laughs> checking IDs. Right. I'm sure it is true, but nobody gave, nobody was given a shit to anybody else. And right. this was some skeezy tattoo parlor in Boulder. It wasn't like he was, it's not like I was getting a tattoo in the basement of a church, but I was like, Oh, huh. and he was like, you know, when do you, when do you turn 18? I was like eight days. And he was like, well, come back in in eight days. If you still want this tattoo sort of force you to sleep on the idea. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it was because I think it was because he was an artist or whatever. And he's, he was thinking to himself, like, that's a dumb tattoo. Don't do that kid. But I, and I swear to God, I wish that I wish that one in a thousand tattoo artists practiced that amount of like critical thought about what they were asked to do. Yeah, really? Um, because it, you know, you see so many tattoos where it's obvious that, uh, like a, a person was like, I want a tattoo of a monkey riding a donkey eating a turkey on top of another monkey (laughs) and the tattoo artist who, you know, can't even draw like a parallelogram is like, I got it. I got this one. And it's just, you know, it just looks like somebody spilled coffee on your arm, blue coffee. Mm -hmm. But so, so what happened in my story that I've told a thousand times that I can no longer verify whether it's true or not, because it's so distant it's so distant and so far removed from having been told a thousand times is that in the course of that week, I walked around Boulder going, I'm gonna, at the end of this week, I'm going to get this Mr. Yuck tattoo. And either based on people's reactions to the idea, which I'm sure were universally like, Oh, 
or just based on my own brain processing it multiple times. By the time I turned 18, I was like, that's a stupid idea. Uh-huh. That would have been awful. I would be stuck with that for the rest of my life. This dumb thing that was basically like, basically a sign on my arm that said, I am not mature enough to make my own decisions. Right. And so from that moment, I realized that I was not mature enough to make my own decisions, lasting decisions. And so that set me on a course where I made, I made very few lasting decisions uh, on purpose. There were quite a few things that happened to me that had lasting consequences that all were accidents. Mm-hmm. But I never went into a tattoo parlor again, not a single other time in my life. And, you know, have always thought about like, oh, that'd be an interesting tattoo. Oh, that'd be an interesting. If I, if I were the type of person to get tattoos, I might think about that tattoo. But I never seriously considered getting one after that. I mean, that's, you know, I think because we sort of have this part of the allure, the Roderick allure. Who? Is, is that, Who does? Is that you... Dan, you, quit this. You kind of live, you know, on the... You live by your own set of rules. Yeah, that's right. That's and the that brand. Would, and, but it kind of, you know, like you got to admit, it kind of goes with, like tattoos kind of goes with the Roderick mystique. Well, except you know? that... Except that I play, live... You play guitar, you sing, you, you drive around with a coffee mug in your car, you know, like, what well, else is he going to do? What else isn't he going to do, you know? I, I live in a culture where very, very quickly after that, tattoos became kind of the norm. Mainstream, for sure. Not mainstream. I mean, they're mainstream now, but at the time, they weren't mainstream. They were very, they were very much an inside... Uh, indicator like if you had tattoos in 1989 mm, mm-hmm. you know you were still pretty much inside the inside the loop right like Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder if those guys had tattoos which I, I'm sure they did but it's not like they were rocking big sleeves big arm sleeves I mean Kurt probably had a tattoo on his ass of something stupid because he was dingling and I'm sure Eddie Vedder has some cool tattoos on him somewhere, but it's not like tattoos uh, were, were part of grunge culture uh, were a visible part of it, but they were an insider part of it. You know, now if you're in an indie rock band and, and you're covered with tattoos, it's, if anything, it's a sign that you are super emo and sensitive yeah. and, and quiet and sad. Um, in 1990 tattoos were still an indication that you didn't give a fuck and you were born to die. Right, right, right. Or whatever. And for me remaining outside remaining outside was always the number one was the top concern. As soon as I saw a group start to, co- to coagulate, right? Uh, as soon as a as soon as I felt like I was a member of a tribe. My, my first instinct was always to take one big step, put one foot back out, out the door, one foot in the door for sure. But like, I'm not getting any, you know, when I, when I found out that George Schultz had a tattoo of the Princeton tiger on his ass, (laughs) uh, I have to say that 
some of my esteem for George Schultz diminished uh, because it seemed to me that George Schultz, who had become a, uh, a man of tremendous accomplishment and whatever you thought of his politics, um, he was, you know, he, he had, a, he had arrived at the top station uh, in American public life, but he was just, he had a Princeton fucking tiger on his ass. <laughs> and, and so he obviously was not somebody that you could, you could 100% depend on is what that said to me. Even, yeah. even at the age of, uh, at the age of 20. What about like an ear piercing? Now an ear piercing, Dan, that's a very, very, that, that one I really struggled with because the idea of having both of my ears pierced with gold hoops at a certain moment. And I'm talking about now. Yeah. Same period. 80, 87, I mm, think mm-hmm. in a sort of Adam, Adam anti way. Huh. I'm just going to get both my ears pierced and I'm just going to live it. I'm going to live it. Both. 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 Oh, yeah. No, no, I wasn't going to get some diamond in one ear like some Miami Vice extra. I was going to get both ears pierced like the fucking pirate I was. Uh-huh. And the day that I showed up with both of my ears pierced, both my ears pierced, everything was going to, that was going to be the, I was going to plant the flag. That was going to be the moment where there was no going back. I was now living, I was now no longer like. You were a sea captain. Right. I was not somebody in an in excess video. I was someone who was, uh, who had one change of clothes and I was wearing that change of clothes. Right. I mean, I was, I, this was, this is always the, the ears pierced goes along with the leather pants. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean leather pants like fashion leather pants. I mean, leather pants. I mean, road warrior leather pants. Yeah. Mad Max. There is a, there's a version of life which I, which I toyed with, which I, which I, which I balanced on the tip of my finger, like a little, like a little razor blade, just kept it, kept it balancing there. Where if you had a pair of leather pants that fit and you just wore them every day and didn't have any other pants over time, both you and the pants would acclimate to one another and that would just be who you were. Those right. were the, the, that was your pair of pants and you, and the pants were you and they, you know, whatever, <laughs> to whatever degree you smelled like leather or smelled like someone in leather, that would just be your thing. And it would, if you decided to wear leather pants every day, that decision alone would make a cascading series of other decisions for you. <laughs> yes. You're not going to work in an office, right? You are not going to probably wear a pink polo shirt. Like the leather pants are going to set the tone for everything. Everything. And the earrings seemed like the the gateway to the leather and the, the and the desire to have the leather pants is is sort of, you know, it's in that family of libertarian ideas that appeal to people that are 19 years old where it's like if i can just eliminate all of the all of the eels that are on me, all the hooks that are in me, 
and I can just be the guy with one change of clothes, just living his free life. Then, you know, then modern problems will, will fall away and I will be, you know, I'll be my true human self. So boy, I thought about those earrings and I'm talking about, I thought about them in a very concentrated way for a very short amount of time. Like like an hour? No, 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 no. I mean, you know, for, for a summer. Oh, wow. Okay. I was like, and, and I used to work with a guy that had, uh, that had really long dreadlocks and one day he came to work and he had cut all his dreadlocks off and he had been obviously growing them since he was a teenager and he was in his thirties at this point. And it was such a shock. And I was like, what the, what happened? Why did you cut your hair? And he said, you know what? I wasn't living my dreads. (laughs) Like the dreads are not a fashion thing. They're, you know, it's a, it's a life and it has requirements. And if you are, if you are Rasta, you're living these dreads and you're not just wearing them. And I realized that I was a fraud, that I was just wearing them. I wasn't living them. And I cut them off to spite myself, to teach myself a lesson. And I was like, whoa, heavy. That's heavy. And so the whole, the whole debate about whether or not to get those earrings was, you know, from a fashion standpoint, when I was 21 years old, if I'd walked around with a couple of earrings in and been like, yeah, what's up? Woo. I'm in, I'm in, I am in an NXS video. Like it, it could have played, it would have played, but I was thinking like, if I'm getting these earrings, I got to live these earrings. And is that what I want? Do I want to, is that the, is that my future? Am I going to live? Am I going to live these earrings or not? And in the end, it was too much responsibility. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to live those earrings. I wasn't sure I did. And so not, not making that decision, then obviously I didn't live those earrings because the only way to find out if you're going to live the earrings is if you get the earrings. The only way to find out you're going to live the pants is to get the pants. Right. And not doing it, then of course I didn't, I didn't live those lives. But I was not going to get, let's just put it this way. I was not going to get earrings and leather pants and then two years later not have them. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're going to have to continue with that trend like from then on. Because those are big, those are big choices. Like it's one thing to say like, I'm going to get a floppy haircut and then nine months later be like, I think this time I want a short haircut. I mean, that's, yeah, play around. But I'm going to be a guy that only has one pair of pants. Oh, now I'm going to get a second pair of pants. No, if you're, if you're someone who's only got one pair of pants, like that's, you made that choice. Can you leather. wash leather pants? No, that's, you, you wouldn't want to. No, cause it would, they would mess them up big time. Yeah. The pants and you just become a symbiosis. The day you, the day you put those, <laughs> the day you put those leather pants down is the day that you cut off your dreadlocks cause you're not living it, but you don't you know, you take those pants off and you take them off forever. Yeah. You know, you don't take them off and like, I'll go back to the leather pants one of these days or I'll wear them only on alternate Wednesdays. Like, so maybe I overthought this stuff 
and maybe it was just simple fashion and I should have just, uh, you know, I should have just been a little trendier, but I couldn't abide that kind of trendiness. Couldn't abide it and still can't the, the kid that is really, really punk rock. And then you you run into him a year later and he's really, really hip hop. Mm-hmm. You're like, mm, Nope. Nope. Sorry. You can be either thing, but, and you can be both things, but you can't be one thing with total, with one thing with total sincerity. And then the the other thing with total sincerity a year later with no acknowledgement of the prior thing and expect me to get on board that. John it's time for our first sponsor. It's Mac Weldon. And these are the people who have made your mithril underwear. I'm still very happy about them. I keep, I keep thinking every time I go uh, to the mailbox that there's going to be another package of secret new Mac Weldon things. <laughs> I bet you that I think they listen to these ads. Mm. I think it's time both of us get something, a new pair, a new pair of underpants. The, the the problem is that I'm uh, that I'm afraid that uh, the word is out and that my Mac Weldon underpants are all going to get stolen from me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not the ones that I have on, right? They're going to have to they'll, they'll take them from my cold dead butt. <laughs> I ate lunch with the the Mac Weldon guy. I think it was back during South by Southwest time period. His name is Colin, and he we had tacos at Taco Deli, mm-hmm. and I had told him. The night before, when we were setting it up, I kind of jokingly said, "I will be everything I'll be wearing will be from Mac Weldon." And what? But I, they only make underwear and socks. They make underwear, socks. They make like hoodies and sweatpants too. Oh, right. Okay. All right. So you're just Mac Weldon. I was. Go- I was going to, but not everything that I was wearing was Mac Weldon. I think it was warmer. I didn't wear the hoodie or something. And he said that that shirt's not Mac Weldon. I said, "I'm, Ooh, I'm sorry." Busted. But it would be possible to completely Mac Weldon yourself if you wanted to. And it's great. You know, I've, I've been doing, like, I've been working out a lot, mm-hmm. which started as this, you know, like, my back. I mean, I'm in regular ongoing pain from my back day and night. And, you know, we had this joke around the house where if I, like, if I dropped my keys on the ground, I would need one of my children to run up and pick it up for me because... Otherwise, that would be like a 10-minute operation involving lots of movement and leaning and pain. And, you know, and so that's how like working out started and it eventually became, you know, now I'm actually like lift, like I'm lifting weights like a human being. I'm a human being now. <laughs> and so Mac Weldon talks about how like they make underwear and like it's really good for working out in because it... Uh, it has like it's naturally antimicrobial the way they make all of their stuff the, the right. socks. So I've been wearing this stuff to work out and really put it to the test. What's a better way to put it? You know, it's one thing to like put your underwear on and like sit in your air conditioned car and then sit in your office and go back home. Like that's not really <laughs> testing underwear. <laughs> you just described my life. <laughs> I, I put my underwear on. Yeah. I go sit in an air conditioned car. Uh-huh. Then I go sit in somebody's office. Yeah. And then I go home. It's basically underwear testing is what I do. Right. Well, I, I've been doing the other kind of testing. I've been trying to sweat in it as much as possible. Mm. And I'll tell you what, it's super comfortable. It's super mm-hmm. comfortable. You don't even think about like, is my, are my socks going to be comfortable when I'm lifting weights or whatever? And they are, and they're great. And they make a great product. 
And uh, they believe in the product too. If you don't like your first pair, you know what? They let you keep it. They still give you a refund. Uh, it's a really, really nice setup. The website's super easy to use. But like, like we were saying, they do underwear, they do socks, t-shirts, hoodies, and sweatpants. And uh, they're the best you'll ever wear. So you go to Mac Weldon, M-A-C-K Weldon, MacWeldon.com. And if you use the code ROADWORK, one word, you'll get 20% off all of the stuff that they make. And John, do you have a recommendation? Do you have something they should, uh, they should try? Well, now, you know, I haven't worked out or really exercised at all in so many years now. Really? No, I'm just, uh, I just naturally buff. I became, uh, I became more sedentary than I want to be in recent years. I want to motivate you out of that. Well, that's what I, that's what I'm saying. Like what I, what I should do is be motivated by some workout gear to get in the workout scene. Because, you know, it's not, I'm not somebody, as you know, who's going to wear his workout stuff out into the world uh, because I disapprove of that. But I I'm will. wearing my workout stuff right now. Well, I know, but you're in your own studio. That's not out in the world. No. But uh, well, that's because I'm going in the, in 20 minutes, my son will be here and he's going to work out with me today. So, oh, yeah, see, isn't that cute? We got to get him some Mack Weldon now. He has so, stolen the Mack Weldon socks. What I'm recommending to people, I guess, is that they get some Mack Weldon workout stuff mm-hmm. as an impetus to start working out. There you go. That's what I suggest, and I suggest that to myself, too. Okay. MacWeldon.com, promo code ROADWORK, 20% off. So all of those lasting c- clan choices, you know, if I had, if we still lived in a world where the clan, where our clan was predetermined. Yeah. And, you know, you would have, you'd be, uh, I don't I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're a rabbi, Dan, what, what, what I'm would not, you be? I'm not actually a rabbi. Yeah. A cantor maybe. What would you, what, <laughs> if you, if you were living, if you were living in Poland uh-huh. and your clan had been predetermined, uh-huh. what role do you think you would have in the village? Oh my God. I, I have no idea. We're just, we're, we're in pure yentl land now we're in fiddler on the roof land and here are the i totally relate to that movie on every level (laughs) here are the benjamins they live in the village Uh what are you what's your job i no idea shoemaker how i don't know smith something shopkeeper yeah probably have a little little grocer or some grocery store i I can see you be a nice little grocer yeah you know and if talk to different people you know yeah, exactly. And I'm, I would be some, you know, I would be some person, uh, up in the rocks of <laughs> up in the Rocky Hills of Wales, right? uh, probably sharpening my short sword on a, on a wet stone and playing <laughs> the piccolo. Yeah. I mean, who knows, but, but our clans aren't predetermined now and you get to choose your clan, you get to walk out in the world and choose your clan and, I think a lot of people choose their clan uh, by choosing the clan that seems natural to them or the clan of their parents. And you're not even, they're not conscious of having chosen a clan and you wouldn't be conscious of them having chosen a clan. They just are, they just seem to be the people that they are. But alternative culture, alternative nation was all about like 
hey man, you're not, you don't have to be the clan you were born into. You can choose your own clan. And that was the power of it. You could say, I'm not a, I'm not a white middle-class kid. I'm a, I'm a punker. Or you could say, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, uh, a black kid who is, you know, nerdy and scared of his shadows. I'm a, you know, I'm a cyber superhero. Like you could, you could remake yourself. Sure. And at every one of those junctures, every time I came to a door, that said potential clan I'd walk in. I'd be like, these people are cool. This is pretty right on. Mm-hmm. You get to be friends with everybody. And right at that initiation stage where they were like, you ready? you ready to cut thumbs and be blood brothers. <laughs> I'd go out and get a pack of cigarettes and not right, come back. Right. Here I am, Dan, still clanless. Yeah. But I, I like that. And I like, I like kind of thinking of you as no matter what it is, you sort of set yourself slightly outside of it. Hmm. Well, I was watching this, this video the other day that somebody sent to me and it was, uh, was it, I don't know. It was Iceland. And I don't remember who, who they were welcoming or why, but there was a very small stage and it was outside and it, there was, thousands and tens of thousands of people surrounding them and there was a guy on stage sort of leading them in this what can only be described as a viking kind of a chant he would beat the drum slow like one boom and then the audience would respond by yelling something oh i saw this too what it what was it? and they were i mean it's they're vikings these people are vikings and boom <sighs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I couldn't figure out what that, what that video was of either. It, there was a, there it's was a little really bit of cool it, though. It was cool, but it felt a little bit like if it was taking place in Serbia, it might make me a little scared. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it, that, that did seem a little like, uh, like sort of, of maybe Balkan dangerous. Yeah. Uh, but it's Iceland, so they're not. They're harmless oh, w- these days. Oh, it was Iceland. Yeah. No, okay. All right. Well, that that's a that's like right. A, that means that it was something to do with fairies and elves. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. That's that's that kind of coordinated human stuff is really amazing, and I can't ever be a member of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love to I love to watch it. I love to think of the power of people all pulling together on something, but it is just, I mean, my instinct is always to, to stand aside and watch, to be a, you know, to try and be a, a a witness. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the closest I ever came to that kind of um, like, like temporal world jump in all pull together uh, was uh, when I was on the Gonzaga rugby team. Gonzaga, and what does that mean, Gonzaga? Gonzaga was a was a a Jesuit college, and I went to I went to Jesuit school for two years because when I graduated from high school, I graduated last in my class, and I couldn't 
Right. I, I, I didn't apply to any colleges. And, and then uh, a guidance counselor, I was just thinking about her the other day. A guidance counselor called me a year after I graduated and said, there's a college that I think you should apply to. They have a program for underachievers. And it was Gonzaga. And so I went and, you know, my dad had had such a powerful experience in college and he's, and he, he really, like a lot of people, like George P. Schultz, uh, my dad didn't have a tattoo of the Princeton Tiger on his butt, but if it had occurred to him to get the University of Washington Huskies tattooed on himself somewhere, he probably would have done it. Uh, he was a member of the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity. And he had one of those college experiences, which whether true or not, and I, and I partly think that my dad's college experience was very informed by his own father's mythologizing oh. of college. And he, my dad's dad went to Worcester College in Ohio. Was that the college? He went to college in Worcester, Ohio. What was that college called? Worcester? Worcester College? I don't know. Um, let me let me just let me make sure. I know that there I've been to this college. I just need to make sure that I'm not conflating the college and the town. Uh city of Worcester. Uh, so he went to, he went to college at a time when my, I'm talking about my, uh, yeah, Worcester, Worcester college. My grandfather went to college before world war one. And he had this incredible experience of being just sort of a farm kid. His father had never graduated from high school. And now he was at this small university and they played touch football on the quad Mm. and they wore raccoon coats and, had straw boaters and spats and he had that F Scott Fitzgeraldy kind of college experience that uh, was very real to him. And I think he infected my father's brain with that. And so my dad had the 1940s version of it. Um, a lot of touch football, no straw boaters, no raccoon coats, but hijinks fraternity fraternal, brotherhood love the crew team that type of thing and you know my dad was a real super super joiner and college meant everything to him so when i went to gonzaga he had all these he had all this advice and all these that kind of unspoken expectations that i would be the I would be on student government and I would play competitive sports and I would walk around campus in tennis whites, swinging a tennis racket uh, while my, you know, while my uh, girlfriend handed out flyers to come to her uh, cotillion. I mean, I have no idea what, how, how completely fantastical his vision was. Right. But my, by the time it, came to me through that game of generational telephone where like my grandfather was pretty messed up and he messed my dad up and then my dad got it to me past that, that hot potato to me. So I was at Gonzaga and I was like, I guess I'll join the rugby team. (laughs) That, that seems like, like uh, old world enough, you know, like it's, it's kind of the, the right blend of preppy violence Mm -hmm. plus, obscure 
obscure sporting um, what ho a little bit, you know, like there's nothing, there's nothing preppier than, than lacrosse. Yeah, really. And who the fuck plays lacrosse? I mean, the, the, the fact that it is obscure is its chief uh, virtue. So I joined the rugby team and, um, and in some ways was well suited to play it in the sense that I was big and could take a lot of punishment, but I was really unsuited to play it in the sense that it required that you train and also understand and care about (laughs) the sport. So I played it for a while and I, and you know, and it, rugby almost ripped my ears off a couple of times and I was very, very good on the competitive drinking side of the sport, (laughs) which is at least 40% of the competition (laughs) with other teams Right, is in the, you know, they can beat you on the field, but if you beat them in the bar after the game, it's more or less a draw. And, uh, and I was very good at, I was very good at that, but that was my last that was my last run at competitive sports and uh and I was not i mean there's there's a picture of me hanging in the hall of the main building at Gonzaga with the rugby team, and everybody else on the team is there in their in their jersey with their short hair and their you know their like preppy good looks their can do attitude, and there I am having forgotten that that day was photo day wearing a hat, like a, like a wool, um, a wool, like Lord of the manor hat with shaggy unwashed hair, visibly baked out of my mind and drunk, just sitting right in the middle of the team. Like, Hey, woo. And I'm sure that every other person on the team, when they look at that picture, they're like, Oh my God, if not for, if not for Roderick, that would be a great photo of us. Uh, and I, I, every, pretty much every group photo I ever appeared in all the way through high school and college, I, I'm pretty sure I, I'm the element that ruined the photo for everybody else. (laughs) Pretty awful. (laughs) So no, uh, no earrings. Nope. I, the, the guy that runs my record label, Josh Rosenfeld still wears the earrings that he wore, that he got under these same circumstances I'm describing. And they're a very natural part of who, who Josh is, mm-hmm. but he did the thing, which is he got them. And then when they stopped being cool or seeming cool, he did not flinch he said i've made my choice i staked my flag and i'm gonna wear these earrings until the day i die and you know i don't think if you talk to josh and we're like what do those earrings represent to you i think he would just be like "Ugh." but but he has my he has my admiration because he still got them on and that's what i would be i'd still be wearing them now what about like a like a man bun have you ever done that? You had you had that long hair, and I could see you pinning it, pinning it back up. Come on, Dan. Come on. These are questions. 
The uh, when you I had never, long hair, have you never put it back in a ponytail? You never. Oh, put for it, sure, for sure, a ponytail, but never up. A ponytail's not a man bun. A man bun is like a. Just asking. The 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 closest I came to that when I had long hair was, um, I guess what you would call the Boromir. Uh, Boromir. Which is, you you have your long hair, and you kind of pull. You pull. Oh, yeah! I'm looking at this, and it's showing. Uh, it's showing pictures of uh, Ned Stark from. Yeah, Game right. Of Thrones. Ned, Ned Stark was Boromir, and it's you know he's got long hair, and the and the hair around you know the the. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I can see you doing this. Right? The front hair, the back hair, but then somewhere in there, somewhere back there, you have tied some amount of it back, not Uh in a ponytail, but just the stuff that was like, if the wind was blowing and your hair was whipping around. Uh Your horse, uh, you're on a horseback or something. Yeah. You'd want to, you'd want to control it a little bit by kind of pulling maybe the top the top layer of it back into a kind of like gather. But, but to most people, it would still look like your hair was just un ungrouped. Uh, that's the closest I think to anything you would describe as a, as a bun. I mean, I don't like, I don't get the, I don't get the bun. It, it's, um, it does not strike me as, efficient and it's not you know like the 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 style that women sometimes with long hair wear where they pull their hair back really severely yeah and wear it you know in a very tight slicked back no, I ponytail like, i like that i know exactly what you're talking about yeah i it is not my preferred style and so it's just a question of like how do you like your how do you like people to look I like everybody to look like they just um like they just woke up. That's my preferred look. Did you just wake up? Then I think you look great. <laughs> if you look like you even ran a comb through your hair, I'm like, "Well, all right, you know, you're looking nice. What are you going to a wedding? Is it if you have a job interview?" <laughs> right. But if you just look like if you just look carelessly put together. And I mean, going out in the world and looking good and looking like you just woke up at the same time requires a certain amount of artistry. I'm not saying that I want you to actually just wake up and, and greet the world with your, your uh, lipstick smeared all over or your, your stubble or whatever, you know, like I, I, I shave my cheeks so that it makes my beard look like it grows naturally Mm -hmm. differently than it does grow naturally. Like I put some care into looking like I just woke up, but you know, the more you look like Tanya Harding, the more I am out the door Uh and man buns just seem like this weird. I don't know. It's just, it seems weird to me. I, I wore long, 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 long hair for years and years and years. It never occurred to me to twist it up on top of my head and put a chopstick through it or however, However, that is accomplished, right? However, it's accomplished. Like that just didn't seem like the way to, I mean, if that's, if you want your hair out of your eyes, put a hat on, right? Put a baseball hat on. Uh, So no, 
in answer to your question, but, but the Boromir, and if my hair were thicker, I would do, I would do the full Gimli. Like I would braid the sides into a full on Viking, yeah. like long hair with braided, uh, <laughs> payas, basically right. like uh dwarf payas. And if I had that, now I when I, when like, I Google for John Roderick hair, mm. uh, Thor comes up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> picture of, uh, I forget the actor's name, but he's in his Thor regalia. Oh yeah. Thor regalia. Yeah. John, our, uh, our second supporter today is Wealthfront. Wealthfront is an automated investment service with nearly $3 billion in client assets under management. They manage a diversified, continually rebalanced portfolio of index funds for their clients in a low-cost and tax-efficient manner. And what this means is anybody with as little as a few hundred bucks to millions of dollars you can invest and you will get the great quality of financial investment that in the past was reserved only for people with a million dollars or more who were paying at least 1% per year in management fees. Wealthfront, they charge no trading commissions. They're completely free for accounts under $10,000. And for accounts larger than 10K, their management fee is only 0.25% per year. The best modern technology with rigorous investment research. They cut out the middleman and give everyone sound investment management. But John, their deal for listeners of this show, the first 15K will be entirely free of charge for life. So you don't pay commissions, you don't pay hidden fees, you don't pay management fees on your first 15K instead of the 10K. That's because they love they love the show. <laughs> and the URL to go do to get that is wealthfront.com slash five by five. And uh, I mean, what, what do you think of that? What should people do? Are you, uh, do you have a diversified portfolio? Not, not enough. It's yeah, all, I feel like- it's all in, in the mattress. Just buried. In front of it. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Is that right? It's all, uh, I got it. Yeah. You know, you got your go bag is like a, like a t-shirt and a change of underwear, a pack of, you know, camels or whatever. And, you know, mine is, is I don't really have that. I just have money un- under the mattress and just a small stack and I'll buy everything on the road. Yeah, I I feel like I feel like diversifying um is something diversifying your assets is something that that it behooves anyone to like examine. Is that the is that the thing is that is that what's going to like like keep you safer, right? I mean, if you think about what just happened in the UK where the value of the pound went from basically a dollar 50 to a dollar 29 in a, in a couple of days. You think about if people had their money in their mattress or just in the bank, um, how they would have, how their, I mean, the losses they would have sustained now, presumably if they, I mean the, the, the market also fell. Yeah. And so in a situation like that, you would need to be diversified enough across a broad enough, you know, uh, uh, like world of investments that, so, uh, that you would try and be insulated against 
catastrophe like that. I remember, you know, I mean, and that's the, all the people with their crazy theories about the gold standard and whatnot, but like to be a responsible adult and have a portfolio rather than to have all your money in, uh, in guitar picks like I do. It's, it's such an intriguing idea and one that, that if you're on your own trying to do it yourself, it would be, you know, it would be all consuming. It does. It feels like a thing that you would want. Um, you want your own kind of, I mean, my dad had a broker, right? Yeah. What? And, and it would be nice to have a broker. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a, a fun thing to, to sit and talk about? Not to your, me. Your broker. Yeah. Where, How's your money invested? Well, my broker is Wealthfront, and yeah. Wealthfront says... That'd be much easier. Right? You know, but that's the whole thing that they're doing, is they're taking it away from this sort of old world, old guard, stuffy, stodgy, you know, go in and, and like sit down with a person and spend hours talking. They, they have a little portfolio thing, a little uh, profile thing you fill out. And it kind of tells them if you are more aggressive in your investment ideas and concepts and based on your age and other things, or if you are investing more conservatively because you're maybe closer to retirement, they figure all that out and they reinvest everything based on the markets. They reinvest everything based on that strategy of long-term investment. So it's, you know, like this isn't a day trading kind of thing. This is like what you're talking about with, with your, uh, with your dad where, you know, this is something that you're doing for your long-term planning, for your retirement, for your future. And, uh, and they bring this really cool, really, really well thought through process to anybody, even people with like literally just a few hundred dollars. That's all you need to get started. So again, the URL to go to wealthfront.com slash five by five, your first 15 K invested for free. So go check it out. Thank you very much, Wealthfront. I know. You know, in a perfect world, I would have had hair like Zach Wild. Mm. And, you know, like Zach Wild is the sort of exaggerated version of the me that had earrings and wore leather pants. Like Zach Wild is just a little bit older than me. He is a little bit taller than me. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit thicker than me. Mm-hmm. He's a way better guitar player than me. And he has like really good hair, really good, like rock and roll hair and a really good rock and roll beard. Like Zach Wilde is just the, uh, is the like fucked up Viking. Yeah. He's just, if you take me and you turn up all of the faders, <laughs> 10%. It's like, there it is. There he is. And he's just, he's a lot fiercer than me. Like he's mad. He's, he's mad about, he's very mad. He's mad that the world isn't more metal. He's mad that he has to, you know, he wants to fly with the Eagles, but he has to work with the turkeys. Like Zach Wilde has got a lot to be mad about. And I don't really have that much to be mad about. I was at a store the other day and there was a leather, wristband a two buckle leather wristband not quite a gauntlet but 
not a watch band either. It was like, you know, eight inches across and it wasn't black or studded. It was like, it was truly a a 1970s thing. It was a brown leather wristband worn for no other purpose than to fend off knife attacks and to indicate that you are bad to the bone. And I picked this thing up and I turned it over and over in my hands and I was reminded of the earrings and of the leather pants. I mean, I do think about these things all the time. Well, you know, but it's not too late. You could get earrings now. You could get a tattoo now. Too late, Dan. It's too late. Why is it too late? You're still just, you're not paying, you're not paying attention. It's too late. These were decisions. Had I made these decisions at the age of 17, there would be no pre John to compare to. Everyone would only know the Zach wild version of John. You don't go online and find pictures of Zach wild, uh, in a pink polo shirt and go, ha ha. Look at that guy. What, what, I wonder what happened. Did he get hit with a rock and roll lightning bolt? You know, if you're going to, if you're going to like mythologize yourself in one direction like that, like I am, you know, Sven's son of Sven <laughs> and I, and I play black metal and you know, you don't want your, your bar mitzvah photos coming out and there's just, you know, there's, there's no way now that I can, I conceivably could start wearing leather pants every day and just be like, yeah, I just apocalypse. Am I right? But, but I couldn't wear the earrings and the only way I could start wearing tattoos is if I went to prison for some amount of time. If I, if I, if I was in prison for 10 years, let's say, and I was able to read all the works of Shakespeare, I would also then (laughs) allow myself to get some prison tattoos. You know, that would be like a, that would be a justification. Sure. I'm not sure if I would actually do it, but it would be justifiable to me. But so I put on this wristband, this leather wristband, and I walked around this store and I was like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Like the leather wristband no one is, no one sees it coming. This isn't a thing. This isn't a thing that anybody else is doing. I mean, Zach Wilde is probably doing it to keep the road rash off of his arm from playing his shredding licks on his bullseye Les Paul. Right. But the, but this isn't some studded, uh, Rob Halford wristband. This is like, this would be my own thing. I would be rocking a seventies style wrist gauntlet. Uh-huh. And I was really into this thing in it. And I wore it around the store. And I was there with my lady friend. And I walked over and I was like, you know, didn't really call attention to it. I was just like, oh, you find anything, anything cool? And she looked over and she was like, what is that? Take that off immediately. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, take that thing off your arm. I was like, I was thinking that this was pretty rad. I was kind of like, she was like, no, no, no. And so then I felt like this was kind of a challenge. Like, yes, I, I feel like this is communicating something about me. She was like, it is communicating something about you that no one wants to see. Take it off. Wow. And so, you know, it was, it obviously like was sending a powerful message. Um, but you know, I have learned over time that 
in those moments when you feel like, no, 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 this is, this is me. I'm getting this even for my own private satisfaction. I'm going to get this. I'm going to wear it around in the, when nobody's, when nobody's looking, I'm going to wear it to a show or something. I, I, I have learned over time that when someone close to you says, no, that is the, that is what you, that was the response you were looking for. Yeah. And so I left the thing, although I have to say, Dan, I've thought about it several times since then. What was so alluring to you about it? Do you have a picture of it? Did you snap a photo? No, no, I'm sure you can imagine it. It's just like a, you know, it's like, like, it's like a, it's a fucking, one thing is it's a pointless thing. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't hold anything. It's not, it is pure adornment. And it's adornment in a style that communicates that you're, uh, I mean, you could wear it if you were like a member of SCA. How many buckles did it have? Two? It had two buckles. Yeah. But, but you know, spaced widely enough. It was, you know, it would, would have represented my entire wrist. Was it more pirate or more punk? Neither. 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 It was... Bondage? No, 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 no. It was, I have... Uh, I have like a 56 hardtail. Oh, biker that I work on all the time. And my, my old lady is wearing like high waisted bell bottom blue jeans. Uh And I have, and I look like Zach Weil Mm -hmm. and we sit around and we go out to the gravel pit and we shoot beer cans, uh, with a, with my 44. Mm hmm. And I have, uh, you know, uh, uh, other than the motorcycle, like I have a 68 Chevy C20 pickup. Right. That you restored. And I'm wearing, uh, you know, I have the same pair of leather pants on and the same pair of motorcycle boots on every day of my life. Right. So that's what it, that's what it was. That was the life that I always imagined that I might lead. My first motorcycle was a was a 1981 Honda CB 650. And it was not a 1975 Honda CB 754 which would have put me into one subculture. If I had had a 1975 CB 754, I would have made a choice to go into a, a subculture that still exists today, which is the cafe racer, um, like motorcycle subculture, which I admire from afar. Or if I had gotten a like cheap, poorly running Harley Sportster, like a 75 Harley Sportster, I would have made another choice. I would have zagged. And I would have probably pursued that life. But instead, I had $500. And I went into a motorcycle shop in Yakima, Washington. And I said, what, can, what motorcycle can I get for $500? And the guy said, none. None motorcycle. <laughs> and I said, seriously, though, I want a motorcycle. I want to drive across America. And he said, for $500? And then the kid behind the counter said, I've got a motorcycle. I'll sell you for $500. And his boss was like, whatever. 
And so I waited for that kid to get off work. He picked me up and took me to his third location. And he was like, here it is. It's, a, you know, an 81 Honda CB650. And at the time, you know, 750 seemed like a pretty big bike. 650 seemed a lot more manageable. But what I, what I didn't understand was that I had hit in, I, I was landing in a realm of motorcycle that did not represent a subculture. There was no subculture around 1981 Honda 650s. And even unto this day, that's not a Honda. I'm sure saw that motorcycle as an evolution uh, of their, of the CB seven, you know, CB, the, the uh, 754, the 554, they saw it as like, Hey, there's our new thing, but it's just a, it's just a sort of inelegant cruiser style, just normal looking, boring looking motorcycle. I'm looking at pictures of it. Like if you said to a kid, draw, draw a motorcycle, they would pretty much be drawing this. Yeah. Unless they knew what a Harley was or something. And so I get on this thing and I know nothing about motorcycles. I didn't even own a helmet. Oh my God. And I drove to Seattle from Yakima and I went to a motorcycle store. I I drove to Seattle and, uh, and I got like the entire trip. I was just eating bugs the entire way. Like just, just big insects just flying right into my face the entire time. A couple of bugs hit me so hard in the face that they almost knocked me off the motorcycle. Like couldn't believe how, how many bugs there are waiting to kill you. And so I bought a helmet uh, primarily to keep the bugs out of my face. And then I was at this motorcycle store and I was looking around. I was like, what else can I get for $5? You know, I didn't have any money, but what do you have for like, what do you have for motorcycles? I was like, well, over there is a pile of junk. If you want to sort through it. And in the pile of junk, I found a pair of leather saddlebags that were like uh, braided, braided, you know, sewn together sort of 1969 leather saddlebags. And I was like, how much are these? He was like, I don't know, $8. I said, sold. So I put the leather saddlebags on this CB650. I mean, it was, to anybody in a motorcycle culture, it was already a terrible, terrible pastiche. Right. Those do not belong on that. (laughs) is what that said to everybody. (laughs) And then I didn't have money for a leather jacket. And I had never been to a Walmart before. And I was talking to people in Yakima, like where, well, you know, I need a motorcycle jacket. And they were like, well, go to Walmart. You know, you don't have any money. Go to Walmart. I went to Walmart and there were no motorcycle jackets, but there was like this, big, big sort of puffy parka for (laughs) nothing. I couldn't believe it. It was like $15 uh, at a time when growing up in Anchorage, right? A big puffy parka by, by a respected parka brand, even then was $300. Sure. It's like, you could just buy this parka for 15 bucks. I'll buy it. 
So here I am. Here's my cross country motorcycle outfit. 1981 CB 650 with 1969 braided leather uh, saddlebags with a blue U.S. Navy Vietnam era duffel bag bungee corded on top of the saddlebags and then me in a giant puffy parka. Oh, man. Gray, gray colored puffy parka that I bought at Walmart and I was like I got it. I nailed it. First try. Stuck the landing. <laughs> and uh, that's how I headed off across the country. Oh, man. And so here I am. I'm, I'm driving along. And I would pass other motorcyclists. And I was so thrilled to be in the world on this, you know, on the case now of the future life I was going to lead. This was me. I was, you know, I was going to be for better or worse, a biker. And I would pass other motorcyclists and wave enthusiastically to them, which as anyone knows is the last thing that you try to do. And I wait, I waved at hundreds of motorcycles and never got a single wave in reply. What do you think they were thinking? They were thinking what a fucking dumpster fire that is. I don't even know what that is. They were thinking, I mean, not even the Honda Silverwing riders would wave at me. Not even the people who were, who had obviously like dug their motorcycle out of a, out of a trash pit and gotten it running. Like, nope, they didn't wave because they were just shocked. I think the Harley guys don't wave at anybody or they didn't at the time. Like the true biker guys don't wave at you. Right. Don't wave, they wave at anybody, but you know, <laughs> even the like. BMW drivers who are mostly nice people who, you know, the Kawasaki people are nice. They will wave at you, but this was just too shocking. It just looked like <laughs> it looked like a, a parade float made out of garbage bags. And as you're, as you're driving, of course, the big puffy parka fills up with air. So yeah, I look like the Michelin man. <laughs> anyway, I crashed that motorcycle. Oh no. And, uh, you know, and just yard sailed all my stuff across a field in Kansas and yard sailed myself across this field in Kansas. Oh and God. the bike was totaled and, um, and I wasn't totaled, but I was half totaled and I took the motorcycle. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before I crashed it, I actually went to, I was looking for more parts, right? I, Cause I felt like it needed parts. That was what the motorcycle didn't have. It needed some customizing parts. And one of the parts I imagined it needed was a, was a big, big sissy bar in the back. You know, the big one that comes off the back of the seat that your, uh, that your co-writer, your lady can hold on to or lean back on (laughs) maybe one that had like a, like a Maltese cross on it or, (laughs) you know, some like some, some bit of that last bit of customization that was going to make this into a, that may make this $500 motorcycle into a chopper. (laughs) <laughs> and I pulled into, I don't even remember what state it was in Oregon or something pulled into a gravel parking lot of uh, like a, like a motorcycle parts dump. And it's basically a junkyard of motorcycles. And I pull in and it's all these, like it's not just Harley dudes out front. It's Harley dudes that are looking for parts. <laughs> so it's not Harley dudes whose motorcycles are running in peak, condition it's parley dudes that are like 
I got to go down and find an alternator or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> they don't have alternators on those things, but you know what I mean? Like they're looking for, they're looking for something to get their shambolic ride back on the road. And I pull in in this, I pull in as previously described, park my bike, put it on the kickstand. The five or six people sitting out front are like the five or six people sitting in front of a saloon in an old Western and they're just gawping at me. And I give them a nod like, howdy, fellas, <laughs> fellow biker dudes. And I walk inside and there's a, you know, a guy in a, in a greasy undershirt with a small cigar in his mouth. He can't believe what he sees. I'm like, hey, I'm looking for one of those things that goes on the back of your motorcycle where like your girlfriend would lean. <laughs> Maybe if it's got a Maltese cross on it or something. I don't know what they're called. <laughs> something that I could bolt on pretty easily with this one multi-tool I have <laughs> as my entire toolkit. And the guy is like, uh, I don't think we have anything like that. I was like, really? That seems like a basic thing for motorcycles. That's like a basic accoutrement. He was like, well, I'm not sure what an accoutrement is, but we, <laughs> we don't have uh, that thing that you're looking for. And if we did, it wouldn't fit on a Honda. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the room got cold. <laughs> and I looked around and I realized this was not a Honda friendly environment uh -huh. at all. There were no Honda parts here. And so, you know, I kind of cricked my neck and was like, thank you, sir. And good day. And I walked back out and I got on my motorcycle and I started it up with the electric start, <laughs> you know, not kickstart. And all these guys, you know, and the, the guy in the undershirt and the two people that were in the office, both come out and stand in the doorway, just marveling at this this sight that looks like something from the movie Brazil. And I gave it the gas and I gave it too much gas. Oh no. And the tire broke loose in the gravel. <laughs> and all of a sudden the rear end of the bike started pulling away, spinning away. <laughs> and I was a brand new motorcycle rider, so did not know what was happening. Oh my God. So just reflexively, I made the, the classic error and just gave it more gas. <laughs> and so the bike is spinning out of control and <laughs> shooting gravel at all of these guys. Oh my God. <laughs> so the back tire goes around and just shoots gravel, not only at all these guys, but at all of their motorcycles. Right, yeah. Just like machine guns, everybody oh with dirt God. and gravel. And then the bike, and then I lose complete control of it. The bike falls over on top of me and stalls. Oh my God. <laughs> and now I'm, lay, I'm laying under this thing. Oh my God. Smelling like gas. And nobody offers to help. They just all sit like even, they're not laughing, they're not crying. I don't know what's going on inside their hearts, but they watch as I 
str- first struggle to get out from under the motorcycle. Second, <laughs> struggle to get the motorcycle back up. You know, sort of apologizing profusely, oh, but also God. just wanting to be anywhere but there. Then I struggle to get it started because the motor's flooded. <laughs> Until I finally get the fucking thing to start and then get on it praying to every God in the world that I don't do that again and very, you know, very slowly let the clutch out and just limp out of that parking lot. Like I had never, I had never been such a triumph in all my life. Oh my God. So when I finally wrecked the motorcycle, I, I, I took it. A friend came out to Kansas where I had crashed with a truck, his pickup. And we lumped this, this bent piece of steel into the back of his truck and we drove it in and we took it to a place in Denver called Denver used motorcycle parts or dump and Denver used motorcycle parts is a giant, giant clearing house of motorcycle garbage. You could, you know, build a hundred motorcycles out of what they have in there. And it was another guy in a dirty undershirt with a small cigar. (laughs) And you know, this, my friend was like, get this thing out of my truck. So we pulled the motorcycle out of his truck and then he drove off leaving me there. And I was like, what will you give me for it? And the guy in the undershirt said, I will give you zero. (laughs) And I said this, I paid $500 for this bike as though, I mean, $500 was a lot of money to me. Sure. But I was saying that as though $500 was a meaningful amount to him Mm -hmm. in this context. Yeah. And he said, this wrecked 650 is not worth anything to anybody. No one is ever going to come into my store and say, what I'm looking for is a part from an 81 CB 650 that just, that's not ever going to happen. And I was like, please, mister, please. It's all I have in the world. This was, this is my only asset. And he said, I'll give you $50. And there was nothing I could say. I was like, I'll take it. I'll take the $50. And then I said, can I have the broken speedometer? Oh my God. As a souvenir. And he was like, oh, please be my guest (laughs) here. He said, let me take it off for you because I don't want to watch you struggle for an hour and a half to figure out how to take the speedometer off. And he gave me the broken speedometer, which I still have. Dan. Oh, of course you do. Man, I could have been a, I could have been a motorcycle guy, Dan. I could have, I could be a motorcycle guy. Now I could be living that life. If I had just made the right choice, maybe you did make the right choice. Mm. Maybe that was the wrong path. Maybe you averted, some kind of disaster and an alternate oh. timeline, an alternate timeline. You didn't buy that bike. You bought, you know, something else. I don't know. Dan, you are, you are, you're so good to me. You're so thoughtful in trying to make me feel better about never having lived the motorcycle life that I, that I hoped and dreamed to live. You no, know, maybe, maybe you wound up on some kind of terrible, dark path that way. 
self-destruction. Oh, almost certainly. Misery. Almost certainly. Almost certainly I would be covered in tattoos. I might even I might even be dyed. Yeah, you might even be dyed. But we'll never know. We'll never know if I, you know, maybe I was meant to be dyed and now maybe you're living on borrowed time as it is. Yeah, maybe it's some kind of butterfly in China thing. Right. Where the the masters of the universe are like fuck. Roderick should have died back in 89. The whole thing is screwed up. You know, and like maybe in a few years when you find the time machine, you'll go you'll go back and you'll you'll be your friend who sells it to you. You know what I mean? Or the guy in the store that sells it to you rather. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or you'll put you'll pay him money to do it. You know what I mean? You you perhaps have engineered this whole thing cuz you've seen the other side. I've seen the other side, Dan. I've seen it. I'm looking at that CB650 now and I'm thinking, it's not a bad looking motorcycle. Well, people are idiots. Do you still, I mean, do you still have a motorcycle or ride or, or anything? No, I can't do that. It's too dangerous I, and you're a parent. Too many people die. Uh, uh, too many people die unintentionally. And the thing is, I love motorcycles. I love people on motorcycles. I love everything about motorcycles, but I think one of the problems is I live in Seattle, which is one of the worst motorcycle cities in the country. It's, it's just, Seattle is just wet Hills. Mm, there's not, no, not there's, where you want to be. There's no flat dry ground anywhere. It's wet Hills everywhere. If you were on a, if you were on a motorcycle of any size, you would spend half your time just with your back wheel spinning. Um, and I rode a Vespa around Seattle for many years and, and even that, you know, on the wrong, you get on the wrong hill at the wrong time of day and it's sketchy yeah. on a big Harley. I don't know how you would do it. And I see the, I see people that even in Portland, which is a flat town. Sure. Um, motorcycles make more sense, but you know, you see pe- people in motorcycle culture that live in Arizona or Southern California where it's just flat and dry and sunny all the time. It's, it makes a lot more sense. Even Texas, right? Motorcycle-y. It's much more motorcycle-y. Yeah, it is. We don't see it here in Austin like we did in Orlando, right by Daytona, where you saw motorcycles all the time. Right. Well, you know, motorcycle culture is, doesn't know what to do with itself. It's not old-fashioned motorcycle culture is somewhat on the wane, I think. I mean, Harley Davidson did the world actually a huge disservice. Harley started to feel that the bikers were bad for the Harley brand. Oh. And Harley wanted to be the motorcycle of the the affluent middle class guy who wanted to buy a big dresser bike with all the parts all the accoutrements and go out on the highway uh, with a, with a ride to live jacket that he bought a Harley branded ride to live jacket that he bought for $1,400 at the Harley store. And that all these greasers who really lived motorcycles lived and breathed motorcycles. They were just bad for the brand. And so Harley stopped supporting the the biker culture 
and reinvented itself as a suburban uh, yuppie cruiser culture. Yeah. And that, and that's what you see now. You know, you see Harley Davidson trying to sell very expensive motorcycles to middle, late middle-aged people. And it left the biker culture kind of without a umbrella because if you're an American biker, you're riding a Harley. There's not, I mean, maybe you'd ride an Indian uh, if you could find one, but no, you're riding a Harley Davidson and, and to f- to find that the company, the Harley Davidson company itself is openly hostile to you. It, it gives you a, there's a little bit of an identity crisis within biker culture. It's kind of how I felt when the Gibson guitar company decided that what it really wanted to do was sell guitars with mirrored flames on them Yeah, to people at guitar centers in St. Louis rather than sell like well-made guitars to people that use guitars for their living. That feeling of betrayal, you've dedicated your, you've dedicated your life somewhat as a, as a biker to this product to Harley Davidson. And that you feel like you've sealed that bond with a, with a brand. And then the brand is owned by people that don't share those feelings. And, um, and all of a sudden you feel like an orphan. So I don't know. Biker culture was undermined. And I see, I see certain kinds of young people kind of trying to re-embrace it, but it, it, it's, it, it's not part of the popular. It's not popular like it was in the, yeah. in the seventies and eighties when it was an, an enormous subculture. My friend had a Yamaha bike in high school Mm -hmm. and his goal was to have a Harley. Of course. But he couldn't afford that. And he bought like a used Yamaha, which it seemed, it was cool little bike, you know? And sounds just like me. Yeah. But I, I remember one time he, uh, and I, he had just, I think he had just bought it and he's like, Hey, you know, m- meet me out at this place where I'm buying. It. I'm like, all right. So I drove him out there and he's like, here, here it is. I just bought it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Looks great. And he's like, yeah, I want to, you know, just like, I'll follow you back. And I said, all right. And so I was driving and I guess he anticipated since it was a new bike that it was questionable. Maybe something was wrong with it. And I'm just driving along and keep looking up my rear view mirror and drive a little bit, look up in the rear view. And then he's, the next thing I know he's gone. And where he had disappeared was in like where the, there was this kind of, this is like near Fort Lauderdale and Fort Lauderdale in the like late eighties was most of it was pretty sketch. <laughs> and we were driving cause he had bought it in this place where there was like a lot of like warehouses and, Stuff like that. And uh, I didn't know where he went. So I'm kind of driving around in these warehouses. And I kind of was like, okay, you know, and we didn't have cell phones and have anything like that. So I drove around for like 15 or 20 minutes. I couldn't find him. And finally, I'm like, well, screw it. And I just drove back home. And I sat there and he called me. He's like, dude, what happened to you? <laughs> like, 
I didn't know what happened to you. Where'd you go? He's like, you didn't see me pointing down the alley? I'm like, no. He's like, oh, yeah, the clutch went out. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, well, where where are you? And uh, I had to drive all the way back there, pick him up. And he had to leave the bike by some warehouse. But he finally put it back together and, and, and drove that thing around for a little while. But it didn't last long. And that was, you know, like he gave me a ride on it once. And I just didn't see the allure of it. I didn't, I mean, it was fun. Like it was neat to be on a motorcycle in a way. Maybe you've got to drive it to really enjoy it. But I never made that connection from this. This is like, this is how I want to get around. Like mm-hmm. it never, you know, I mean, I saw the Pee Wee Herman movie with the bikers and the biker bar and the fun dance, but it didn't, like it didn't draw me into wanting to be a part of that particular culture. I, de- I definitely was more of the muscle car kind of a culture. Like we've talked about, like tr- wanting to like fix cars up. Yeah. But it didn't yeah. seem like it didn't, you know, like I almost bought an awesome AMC Javelin at one point that needed a bunch of work. But that seemed that to sounds be like a good investment. Yeah. It would have been really great. <laughs> The thing about a muscle car culture, though, is you need, you know, like you need a house or a garage at least, or at least a set of tools that you keep like you're typically if you're driving a muscle car, you're not living in the car, right? It's and with the motorcycle, the appeal of it for me was and this is of Harley's especially is that there's an air about them that you just throw everything you own on one. You have one pair of leather pants and you ride Mm -hmm. and you ride until, and I've traveled like this many times in my life where you just travel until the sun goes down and then you camp and you wake up the next day and you keep moving. And that really, really appealed to me. And the Harley seemed like a good way to accomplish that and maybe to accomplish it with a friend or two. Yeah. Um, you'd see those big, big gangs of Harley people. And even when I was young, I understood that when you all pulled over to camp, there would immediately be enough disagreements about where you were going to park that that was too many people for me to travel with. Yeah. But you know, you and your buddy and your other buddy, maybe, or you and your lady driving across the country on your motorcycle with your, with your bedroll tied over the top of the headlight. Um, it was a kind of magic vision of being completely free. Yeah. And, and I think what was appealing about the subculture was the knowledge that as you traveled across the country, everywhere you went, there would be pockets of this subculture waiting for you. So you could roll into a town, find the bikers there, hang out with them, get the lay of the land from them, maybe make a friend, maybe stay a while. Almost sounds like you're describing a little bit of a tribe or a culture. Yeah. But that a a tribe or culture that also understood that you were going to leave, man, you were going to hit the road. You were going to go into the wind. Hmm. You know, uh, it was, it was, it was a, a tribal culture of nomads and, and that really, uh, that really, really had a pull for me. And it wasn't, I didn't, and, and also an element of like, what's more hardcore, what's more hardcore than bikers. 
they will accept almost any amount of sort of deviance. Right. right. Um, you know, the bikers aren't going to judge you presumably. Yeah. Uh, the things that they would judge you for are disloyalty. But if you are not disloyal, then otherwise it's, uh, I mean, but, but I mean there, but it isn't a question of just like not being disloyal. It's like, you must be loyal. That's a big part of it. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that I ever salute a flag enough to be loyal to anything. Uh, that's hard. That's that, that's, that would be a different, that'd be, that's a whole episode of another podcast, but, um, but yeah, the appeal, the appeal of it was strong and remains strong. I still, I, I, it's just that, that anymore, it's much harder for me to say in my imagination that there's a, that at any time on any given day, I might walk out the door and not come back. Mm -hmm. Like that's not possible for me anymore. The way, the way it always felt like it was. And so, I mean, it's obviously it's still possible. My grandfather uh, walked out the door and never came back like three or four times in his life, Mm. (laughs) even after he had uh, multiple kids and multiple wives. So it's possible, but it's not in my character to do to bail on, on, uh, on what I have. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm not, I'm not likely to, Oh, and that's one more thing about this. One more thing, one more way to, to really, really squeeze the shit out of this topic is that being a biker is not a thing I want to half ass. I don't want to be a weekender. Yeah. Weekend warrior. I don't want Well, that's who, that's who the Harley brand I think is geared toward now or the people who, you know, they sit in their cube during the week and then Saturday afternoon they get on their Harley and ride around. If I was going to have a, if I was going to have a Harley, it would have to be a cool Harley. And if I was going to have a cool Harley, I'd have to live a cool Harley life. And, uh, maybe I, maybe I, I, uh, unnecessarily handicap myself from living life to its fullest by insisting that, that certain ideas have, uh, internal consistency or internal integrity, but I don't want to get out there on a weekend warrior bike. I want to get out there on a warrior bike. And if I'm a warrior, if I'm on a warrior bike, I'm not going to be a weekend warrior I'm not going to be have a weekend warrior heart. Uh, Dan, so uh, as part of our ongoing project to open all of the mail that... Ah, your mailboxes, packages are stacking up. Yeah, and I really feel like I, I have done, I've done it like a great disservice to everyone by yeah. letting... I mean, it's we're coming up on nine months later. Uh, of some of these packages. And so I'm, I, I just opened two boxes. I, I kind of made a commitment that I was going to open two boxes a show. Right. And then I immediately stopped doing that. But, uh, the first box I just opened, um, it, inside there were some wonderful, like, uh, photographic cards, um, like cards that you would send as a happy birthday or, or condolence card, right. but they're, but they're all sort of lovely, um, high resolution photos of flowers and vases oh, and so forth. Very nice. And then a fantastic little note 
from um, from a woman named Sharon who uh, grew up outside of Detroit but moved to Florida. And uh, she sent this primarily because it was National Handwriting Day at the time. Right. Which is January 23rd. <laughs> oh, man. Of this past year, National Handwriting Day. And she wanted to test out her handwriting on these cards. And her handwriting is great. It's very even and, and lyrical. And then she sent me a book. Uh, Thanks for the view, Mr. Mies, Lafayette Park in Detroit. And it's a book about Lafayette Park uh, with photos and the history of it and so forth. So that is a beautiful gift. Thank you. I'm sorry that I let it uh, molder, but it's not moldy. It just moldered mm. in the sense that it wasn't, I didn't get to it right away. But now I have it and I'm going to start reading this book on Lafayette Park. Too sweet. Um, I love that expression. Thank you, Sharon. That was beautiful. And then now the second box uh, came from St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, I, there's nothing I can do but read the letter. Hi, John. I present you with the Evolver, a sex toy hand sculpted and poured with two densities of pure platinum cure silicone. Although I have no expectation that you will use it for its intended purpose, I could not resist sending one along after hearing you riff with Merlin about dildos. This must have happened many months ago. I don't remember ever riffing with Merlin about dildos. It seems unlikely that Merlin would tolerate that kind of talk. No, that's... Seems like something you and I would have talked about. I would definitely talk about that. Uh, second paragraph. At the very least, you Merlin, might- Merlin respects his audience too much. I think. For- <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, at the very least, you might appreciate its heft and hand feel. I certainly hope so. All the best, Colin and Jocelyn at Hole Punch Studios. And in fact, it is a life-size pistol shaped like a uh, like a cowboy revolver. Except instead of a pistol barrel, it is a uh, dildo penis. Wow. So if you were going to use it, you would have almost no choice. But you would have to wield it like a. You would start, I think, wielding it like a gun. Yeah. I'm coming to get you. Yeah. And is it it uh, like relatively rigid or. Well, here you can hear it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's rigid enough. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, but it's also, you know, waka, 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 like it would not, it's not going to hurt anybody. Sure. I mean, you could, you could. Well, not actually, in a typical way. Pretty hilariously pistol whip somebody with this. <laughs> uh, it would be a much different and better experience than getting pistol whipped by a pistol. I feel like you've got to use this. Well, but Jesus, I mean. I don't think there's any way around it. I think, first of all, I think you owe it to, to the people who sent it. I think you owe it to uh, the listeners. You owe it to me. It's not a thing to just whip out on somebody though. Like, Hey, what's, you know, thanks for coming over or whatever. I think you leave it on, you make the bed and uh, leave it on top of the comforter. Uh-huh, just leave it out, you leave it out. And then it becomes a topic. So when they see it, it's not a surprise per se anymore. Uh-huh. It's a surprise, but they're not shocked. Right. Yeah. It's definitely not a thing that you leave on the coffee table. No. But in the right? bedroom, like, what's the, ugh. but if you leave it next to the bed, yeah, sure. It yeah. just seems like what's, uh, what's going on over there? Oh, you know, it's just a little bit of little objet dart. Right, right. A bit of, uh, unless you want to, uh, unless you, you know, unless you brought a, a knife to a gunfight, right. 
Right. So anyway, thank you guys so much for the weird gift. I have been sitting here uh, while talking, sort of swinging it. Yeah. Because it really does swing. That's the that's the word you would use to describe oh, its yeah. motion. Oh yeah, swing. Uh, and I, you know, for now at least, I'm going to keep it here at the office because no, it's a great. Oh, you've got it. You've got to take it home. It's a great little. I think you like, should travel with this. You now, what do you think the TSA is going to say when they find this in my bag? I'm going to be in the newspaper. I think. Uh, first of all, I don't think. I think you'd be shocked what the TSA sees. <laughs> I follow them on Instagram. I wouldn't be shocked. They post everything. Would this even show up in the x-ray machine, though? Because it's whatever, rubber or plastic or whatever. It, it's epoxy, whatever the thing is made of. You know what I'm I saying? Think, like it's yeah, a, I do. I do. I wonder if it it's would. Gonna be invi- it's going to be, for all intents and purposes, it's invisible to those machines. It's silicone. I, I think that they would see a shadow of it and they would recognize like that's the shadow of a gun shape. I don't know. I think you're going to have to do this. Do you check a bag when you travel? <laughs> Is that how you beating? <laughs> You've got to try this. Uh, I'm well, I'm definitely going to find a use for it. Let's oh, say yeah. that. Uh, but it, it, but, but to try it effectively requires consent Mm-hmm. from a second party mm-hmm. well not necessarily uh, could just be well you. it's true i could just be, i could just have a gunfight with I myself know your life uh so i mean i'm <laughs> just gonna have to we'll we'll have to see about this i mean if if i'm gonna if i'm gonna put out a uh a call for consent yeah uh I've, there are a couple of i mean i've got a short list of things mm-hmm. and i guess i have to put this dildo revolver on the short list now is the dildo revolver is the 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 business end of it yes uh like is it anatomically sized or is it yes. in larger than life or it or miniaturized no i would say that it was it was normal sized mm-hmm. it uh you know it's slightly stylized it's not meant to perfectly replicate mm-hmm. uh, uh human anatomy it's sort of got a you know it it it's stylized in character with the idea of it being a gun kind of like, let's say it has a little bit of a bullet tip. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's, um, is this the kind of thing I might hope to see on your Instagram? Oh, almost certainly. I will post something okay. on my Instagram. Yeah. Okay. So stand by All everyone. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, thank you for the lovely gifts, you guys. And, uh, for everyone else, who still has a package waiting to be opened. I am, I am serious about this. I'm going to get these packages open. All right. All right. Well, John, I think we should end the yeah, show. Yeah, I now. guess uh, that's pretty good ending. People have been complaining to us that they, Either they can't tell that the show is ending or they don't like the way that we're ending it. So perhaps we should end the show. Yeah, we should have a now. definite ending for the show so people know the show is over. Don't get confused about whether or not the show is still going. But also not an ending that like is jarring or in any way makes them feel like the end of the show isn't being respected by us, the showers. Right. So uh, let let You're us now end now? the show. 
Do you feel that Do people are ready for the show to end? Not yet. Here, we'll do the end of show sound. Here we go.